Jesus, the Lord of all. What a beautiful name it is. What a wonderful name it is. What a powerful name it is. The name above all names. Wow. I'll never get tired of that stuff. And according to Scripture, we never will. <laughs> well, good morning. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're awake. I'm, I'm assuming. Um, as we're excitingly preparing for the upcoming uh, Sunday on March 15th when we will install our new lead pastor, <laughs> Uh, none of us really knows what God has in store for us in the years ahead, but let me say, I'm excited. I'm excited to what he's going to do, and um, I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, and I also want to say before I get done this morning that uh, over these past four months, this preaching team, I want to echo the words of our pastor last week, uh, Matthew, that uh, on behalf of uh, Larry and Matthew and myself, uh, it's been a true joy to share the wonderful Word of God with you each week uh, over these past four months. And you have been just wonderful, kind, gracious, caring, and I want to thank you for just being the people of God that show love, show support, and encouragement. Um, we, we never pretend up here to be something wonderful and magical but what I say here is you can never go wrong if you stick to this this will never be wrong I could often be wrong but God's word never will be well last week Matthew Pastor Matthew kicked off our current series all in and covered the topic of humility from the book of Philippians and um and he mentioned, and I, I want to reiterate, that probably all of us have some sort of, uh, maybe in the back of our mind, expectations of what we're going to see, what we're going to hear, what we're going to uh, experience when our new lead pastor comes. But I think what happens is um, we're beginning to learn that we as people and as a congregation uh, also have some biblical and godly expectations of us. Often, as you've heard, when you point the finger at somebody, there's three pointing back at you. And so when we point at our lead pastor, I want that to remind you that God has some biblical expectations of us. And um, I think it's important for us to know this because God is calling a man for a specific season of this church with specific gifts, abilities, and even weaknesses. And he wants to make us exactly who we need to be so we complement each other and the mission, accomplish the mission of God that he has for us. And if we haven't done our part, it doesn't matter necessarily what he's done. We need to be where God wants us to be for us together to accomplish what God wants to accomplish. We want to be all in, in unity. Let's just pray. Father, as we cover this topic of unity, would you pierce our hearts of how important this is to us and that it doesn't just happen. You've created it, but you've created it that we might keep it. And I pray, Father, that you would enlighten us of what that means, of how we can keep something so precious that you have made that it has profound and powerful effects on the world around us when we do life your way. 
Help us to see that and to apply it today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my message today concerning this vital, uh, important subject of unity is taken from uh, the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. Now, as you're turning there, let me just briefly introduce the book. Uh, The book of Ephesians was another letter written uh, by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the church that he founded and pastored for three years that was in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a fairly large Greek city, but was uh, located kind of on the west coast of what is now Turkey near the Aegean Sea. Now, this church um, is actually one of the churches that you'll read about in Revelation that still has uh, work to do. As Jesus said, you've lost your first love. So what we want to do here is understand that Paul, who wrote this letter, once again will read from prison, just like Pastor Matthew mentioned that Philippians was, we could see that Paul is already all in, even if it meant prison. But in the first three chapters in Ephesians, it's really wonderful. It's one of the most marvelous bits of theology about the privileges and truths about being a child of God. I, th- I don't want any of us to ever lose some of these things or any of these things. When you walk through life and your boss says you're no good or you're, something happens, you need to drop back here and see in verse 3 of chapter 1 that says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not with half of them. Every spiritual blessing. So when you say, bless me, Lord, there's not one you don't already have what the word says right every in verse 4 it says we were chosen by God before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless do you know no matter who else chooses you what other person rejects you if you know Jesus Christ as your savior you can rest assured that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world he thinks you are valuable it says right now in verse 13 that believers are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit we were given a down payment to say that I am earnest about bringing you home to the marriage supper of the Lamb. You're my bride, and I'm going to give you the down payment of the Spirit as a guarantee you're coming home. We are going to make it. Do you know we have God's seal that we're going to make it? It's incredible. In verse uh, 6 of chapter 2, a remarkable truth Paul shares for the first time. We are right now positionally seated with Christ in the heavenly realm. Do you know that in Christ and in God's eyes, you've already landed? You've already made it. Who feels like they've already made it? I don't feel like that either at times. But according to what God sees in you, you've already landed. You're already there. There is no iffiness about your salvation. You've already landed. I mean, no matter what happens this week, can you understand it? You've already landed in heaven safe and secure. Well, in in verse 8 of chapter 2, we learn that God's salvation, our faith, was a gift, right? It's on the wall over here. It's a gift of God. Anything we have to believe, it's been a gift. We can be grateful that God gave us our salvation. And finally, in last part of verse chapter 2 and chapter 3, he talks about Jesus has taken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, between any distinction that matters. And he says that he has made us one in Christ. 
So before we even get started, we see that Paul went to great lengths to give us truths that we can just hang our hat on every day of the week, and some of these the church had never heard before. They were mysteries, but now we have them. And he pivots in chapter 4 and says, but in light of these truths, just like when he pivoted in Romans 11 to 12, therefore, in light of everything I've been writing for 11 chapters, he does it here in chapter 4. He says, now, in light of these things, how should we then live? What difference should it make? And he starts off with the topic of unity. And let's follow along with me, and I'll be reading in the uh, New American Standard Version today. Ephesians 4, 1 to 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. As we dive in, let's just make sure we all have a common understanding of unity. What in the world is unity? I mean, we, we talk about it. I think in our practical lives, we can certainly tell when we don't have it. Um, if you were in a rowboat rowing across and you and a partner decide to take different oars and you say, let's row, and if you're not in sync and one rows one way and one rows the other, what happens to the boat? Goes in circles. You go nowhere. If you're not in sync, if you're not in unity with a common purpose, disunity will lead you nowhere. And so what we know is we can see disunity when it happens, but what is it? I mean, it's simply a condition of oneness, of harmony, of being united together in purpose. It's when the, the goals of the whole outweigh the individual goals of the individuals. And sometimes when we come to church, individual goals seem to dominate. Is it feeding me? Is it meeting my needs? Am I... We're not looking for the goals of the whole. We're looking for maybe personal goals. I've done it. I don't know if you've ever done it, but I have. And it's not what we're supposed to be doing. Oneness is being united in purpose and being one. See, but we need to be careful. Oneness is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity. We don't have to all look alike. We don't all have to like the same things. We don't all have to appreciate the same uh, hobbies or skills um, we don't have to have group think isn't that amazing all these people in this room have been brought together not because we all agree on everything right in fact you might say um, what brings us all together I mean we're in a room here with how many things that could divide us um, maybe race maybe our nationality, our money, our education, our power, our musical taste. I know everybody in here has the same musical taste, right? That's what brings us together, musical taste. Um, how about worship style? We all, we're, we're all uniform. No. The only thing that unifies us is Christ. 
Christ alone. Christ alone. So the way, what it means to, uh, to be unified means that as a church, we must act, live, love, work together in a way that demonstrates that what binds us together is far more important and powerful than anything that can divide us. Anything. There is nothing that can divide us that is more powerful than the unity that God can produce in our hearts through Christ. Nothing. So now let's say, why does that matter? Why, why being unified matters? Well, practically we can see if we, wanna, if we were in the rowboat, we wouldn't get anywhere. But God gives us some insights to these. We know that God created the unity. And in this passage, he says it's our job to keep the unity. It wasn't our job to make it. It was our job to keep it. But what else would God say about unity? Well, it says it has an effect. When we live as a church united that rises above all the things that might d differentiate us in this room, when we live in the spirit of God, something happens. And Jesus said it this way in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 22 and 23. And let's see if unity matters to Jesus. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. So what? Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. See, Jesus is saying our ability to reach the world around us with a message that's believable is partly linked to our unity here in this room, no matter what we look like and act like and what we prefer. It's because when we're drawn together in a oneness of Christ, it defies all logic of this world. It's powerful. It's a statement. And they will believe that Jesus was sent. Do you want people, isn't that what we want? That we want people to believe that God sent Jesus to save the world? Isn't that what we want people to believe? Do we want people to know that God loves them? One of the ways we do that is when we act like a united body that cares more about what the body needs than about what I need. See? I mean, this is how this works. Jesus prayed for this. Do you think he wants this? Yes, I think he does. And do you think any prayer of Jesus won't come true? No. His prayers were effectual, and this is what he wanted for us today. But God gives us one more reason. Just Maybe he wants to scare us a little bit, but it's a warning. In Luke eleven seventeen, Jesus shares a truth that says that disunity will result in ultimate failure for a home, for a family, for a church, for a nation, for a kingdom. Disunity will cause failure. He said these words, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. It doesn't say may fall, could fall, might be likely to fall, will fall. If we are in disunity in this room, we will fail. You understand? This is something important to God. He says, look, I want my testimony to be clear that Jesus was sent by God to save us and that God loves mankind and he's still waiting with open arms to save them. And that message will get clouded if you don't live in unity. And the second thing he says, if you don't live in unity, you will fail. 
your mission will fail. You will not succeed. So disunity is deadly. Um, and it's funny, he didn't say for us to create it. He just says to protect it. Protect it. An all-in church must protect and cherish unity. Now, I have to tell you, I used to think that unity was just an automatic. I, I've loved the diversity in this room. I haven't, have you not enjoyed the diversity in this room? I have. And I have to say, I used to think that it was automatic. I mean, this is the way church is, right? It's not automatic. It's a gift of God, and God's saying, treasure it and protect it because it's not automatic. And it will not prevail. It will not persist. It will not be this way in 20 years if we don't do these things that he's telling us. So let's look at the verses. At the high level, Paul is telling us in verse 1, I'm going to plead with you that you live a life worthy of your call, a life that is consistent with what God has done for you. In verses 2 and 3, he says the way you do that kind of a living, I'm going to describe them in verses 2 and 3. What does that worthy walk look like? And in verses 4 to 6, he says, I'm going to tell you about why you are unified and in what ways you're unified so that you know what unities you need to protect. Do we need to protect our music style here? Do we need to protect the color of the carpet here? We're going to read in verses 4 to 6 what we need to be protecting. Okay, let's go. In verses 4, he says, There was one body, one spirit, just as also you were called with one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. See, I am very disappointed at times. In this world, the world tends to take diversity and glorify it. It's not that diversity is bad. But if you glorify diversity, if you try to, every time you meet, describe all the ways you're different, you will never have unity. And this country will never have unity if we pursue diversity. If we have to find out, united we stand, divided we fall. If I just come together with 74 eclectic groups of diverse people that do not have a common goal and purpose, we will never be united. And so what we have to do here is Christ up, flipped this upside down and says diversity is no longer the glorified thing. Unity is. It's not you have to forget who you are. It's not after you forget your heritage. He's not saying any of those things. He's just saying they are less important than these seven things I'm going to tell you about. And here we go. Verse 4. There's one body. Did you know that there is only one body of Christ in the world? And you might say, well, there's a whole bunch of churches, a whole bunch of denominations, a whole bunch of flavors. All true believers in Christ, those who have put their faith in Christ alone, there is only one body, one church. Now, we, we put a lot of different labels on them, and I think it's a weakness of man. I think it's a strategy of our enemy, the devil, to divide and conquer. When we, if he can get all the churches to say, well, I want you to divide because you're a First Baptist, Second Baptist, Third Baptist, uh, because you think that this is important and we think this is important and you think that that's important, you have already started to fracture what God sees as one thing. There was only one church on this planet. 
And it labels, styles, locations, denominations, geography, musical taste, worship style have nothing to do with what God sees with us being one body. We need to protect God's one body. We need to be praying for God's church wherever it sits and whatever labels are on it. If they proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord and Him only, we need to support that and pray for them and encourage them. We are one body. But see, there's an interesting thing here. There's one spirit. Now, one would say, well, duh, there's only one Holy Spirit, right? There's only one God, the Holy Spirit. But we have to understand that Holy Spirit was given to every believer to indwell them, to comfort them, to strengthen them, to empower them. And guess what? We're supposed to walk in accordance with the Holy Spirit, right? Galatians? Well, what does that mean? If we all have the Holy Spirit who have Christ and we're all following the same leader, would it not follow that we'll all be pursuing the same objectives? A coordinated team. It doesn't mean everybody on the team has the same job. It just means we're on a mission. We're on a mission. And the Holy Spirit is the one that binds us and gives us our directions. We have one spirit. There's not multiple spirits in this world. One body and one spirit. One hope of the calling. I would love this one. Um, what is that one hope? Well, in Titus 2.11, he calls the return of Christ as the blessed hope of the church. The happy hope. Our happy hope is that Jesus Christ, no matter who you are, if you put faith in Christ, He is coming back for you. He will resurrect you. You will be seeing Him in the air. I don't know whether you go, as they said, by subway first or you go by airmail. You're going to meet Him in the air. You're going to meet Him in the air. Okay, and it doesn't matter. That's our happy hope, regardless of your condition of life, regardless of who you are, where you came from. It doesn't matter. Our happy hope is we get to see Jesus. And to us, it's a happy hope. But to those who don't know Christ, that is not a happy hope. It's the happy hope of the church, of the body of Christ. So our job here is if you're here and you're not in this body and you're feeling kind of left out of everything I'm talking about, it's not too late. You can be part of this body of Christ. All you need to do is put faith in Jesus and He will make you a part of the body. You don't have to do a thing. He makes you a part of this body and He will give you this happy hope and you no longer have to dread if I die today and I meet God, what is that meeting going to look like? Is it going to be happy or is it going to be devastating? God says we have a common happy hope and that happy hope is through Christ. Gosh, can you imagine? I just... I just can't, I can't spend enough time on that, but it's important. Verse 5, Paul describes three, the next three things, and this is about Jesus, God the Son. And that's a great thing to notice about these verses, by the way. In verse 4, you hear about the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, you hear about God the Son, Jesus. In verse 6, you hear about the Father. It's further evidencing that the greatest unity in this universe is God. There is no better example of a unity than God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three in one. We just sang about it. God, the three in one. They never fight. They never quarrel. In fact, they were so happy with each other, they didn't even need us. They didn't create us because they were lonely. They had fellowship with one another that was perfect. If anybody messed that up, it might have been... No, anyway, um, could have been us. But... Right now, in verse 5, he talks about 
one Lord, one faith. Clearly, this is, we can go faster, but what, I don't want to minimize. One Lord. We all have the same Lord. And Lord really is curious. The, the, he's sovereign. He's our king. He's our commander. He's in charge. He's the one in authority. There's only one in authority. Everybody knows in any organization, if there's multiple authorities, there's confusion. This church has one authority, and it's not up here. It's up there. It's Jesus. He is our Lord. We have one Lord. Everyone who has faith in Christ, everyone as a believer, has one Lord in common. We have, next, one faith. Everyone who has put faith in Christ knows that it's true because we hold this. Anything I say today is suspect unless it matches what's in here. Did you know that? Don't listen to me unless it matches this. Do not listen. Go somewhere where they will teach the book of the Bible. This is God's truth revealed it's the revealed word of god it is the faith once and for all delivered by the apostles and the prophets this is what this is so we share one common faith we should have no arguments because any argument in this room should be solved by this book and if there's not in this book it's not an argument if someone wants to say well you shouldn't homeschool or you should homeschool you show me in the book where we can take that stand and I'll side with you. If it's not in there, then it's a liberty that's not described and prescribed by God, and you need to love your brother and let him do what God wants them to do. That's what this means. We have one faith, one authoritative word, and one baptism. This is not just the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I think that all believers, according to what Jesus commanded, he said in Matthew 28, go make disciples, and baptizing them in the name of the pastor of the evangelist, of the apostle, um, of the denomination. No, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We all have that in common. Anybody that put faith in Christ and was obedient and was baptized share the same experience. We all stood and said, we believe in Jesus and we trust in him. Everybody in this room, I don't care what color you are, how old you are, how young you are, how rich you are, how poor you are, we all share these things. And lastly, it says the most important one, one God and Father of all. Wow. Regardless of who you are in this room, if you know Jesus, we all share the same daddy. We're all blood, and it's Jesus' blood. We all belong to the same family. We all wear the same colors. Team Jesus. And God says we're his children. And I love this verse. It says here in Hebrews 2.11, both the one who makes people holy, God, and those who are made holy, us, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. When we meet, there should not be any family squabbles because we have the same dad, we have the same older brother, Jesus, and we're all brothers and sisters of the same family. Can you rejoice in that? Isn't that awesome? I, I, I know some people's family life was terrible, but the dad in this family is wonderful. The older brother in this family is wonderful. You'll never find a better family to be in. Never. There isn't one. Well, because there's only one family... 
we find that the things that bind us, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, this is why we have unity. If we can agree on these things, all the other things pale. They get dim. They're not significant. And that doesn't matter what I prefer or not. If we are one in these things, it does not matter. But this a valuable thing needs to be protected. And let's just go here to verse 1. And it says, Therefore I, reminding us, a prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now, this is interesting. I, I think he again reminds us that Paul understands what walking worthy is and living an all-in life because he's writing from prison. So he just kind of reminds us, by the way, I'm all in, and what I'm saying applies to me as well as anybody else I'm writing to. Life will have hardships, ups and downs, but let's, what does walking worthy even mean? Well, walk, we understand what walk is. It doesn't mean take a walk. It means how you live your life, what you decide, what's important to you, how you choose to behave that's your walk what, what you are afraid of what you get angry at oh we don't get angry uh, what, what, what you like that's how you walk well what's worthy well worthy is a word in the Greek here that simply means balanced it's commensurate it balances with so your life needs to balance with something now what is that and he says here with the calling with which you've been called. Now, interesting, when you walk worthy, this is kind of like where we get, ever heard the phrase, the person's worthy of his pay? This is the same concept here. The person's work output matches the investment I have to put into him, and so it makes sense. And so what he's saying here in this thing is that the walk we walk needs to be commensurate with the immense and great and wonderful salvation that we've been given in Christ. We're a child of the King. Do we live like a child of the King? Now, we've just all seen recently through the news about royals stepping down from their royalty and becoming commoners and, and what that all means. Whether we like it or don't like it or appreciate it or don't appreciate it, or do you think even today living as a king or a royal requires different living standards than the rest of us. They do. There are certain responsibilities, duties, and expectations that are on a prince or on a king that are not on us. And what God's saying here is we are children of the king and we're supposed to live like one. Now, I don't know if you ever heard this, but when I grew up, and I was leaving the house to go with my friends or whatever, and their last, you know, encouraging admonition to me. You're a Volstrom. Live like one. Now, I know you might have never heard that, but, but this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, hey, you're a child of God. You're a son of the king, a joint heir with Christ, seated in heavenly places, Live like it. Do you understand what you have? Live like, that's what living balanced, worthy. It makes sense. It's only fair. It's only right what God has done for us. See, Jesus gave us all to redeem us. 
So are we going all in for him? See, Paul is saying we need to live a life that's all in because it's going to produce something. And it's not just because it's right. It produces something. But what's a worthy walk look like? You might say, pious. I walk around with my hands together looking very holy. Is that a worthy walk? No. Let's look at it. In verses 2 and 3, Paul begins to break this out. Now, if you have an NIV Bible and you're following along, you may read in verses 2, in verse 2 there, it starts a separate sentence, starting with, be humble, be gentle. Um, this is not really as accurate as really what we read here before in the New American. I think it basically says, walk worthy, which includes with humility, with gentleness, with patience. It says a worthy walk looks like humility. It looks like gentleness. It looks like patience. It looks like bearing with one another in love. It looks like keeping the unity of the Spirit in a bond of peace. That's what a worthy walk looks like. So let's just describe those a little bit and take a look at those five things. Humility. Well, thanks to Pastor Matt last week, he did a really good job expressing humility as expressed by Christ. Now, and I'm sure that you've since then realized that humility is tough. Um, it can be elusive. Um, the moment you say, I am humble, you've just failed. It's really hard to pursue something that you can never get your hands on, but we're called to do it. But the only person in history that's ever been able to say that with accuracy was Jesus. And he says, I am humble of heart. Oh, was he true? Absolutely he was true. He was humble. So now, as we look at this, true humility will drive us to focus on the things that Matt mentioned, which is the call of God on our lives. We will serve others, and we will sacrifice for others. Others' opinions and needs will outweigh our own. That's what Jesus said to do. But now Paul's taking a turn and says, there's something different here. I want you to have complete humility. He says, to be united, it takes complete humility. And I said, that was stumping me. I have to say it was stumping me because I was saying, well, what is complete humility versus humility? I said, it's almost like somebody says, well, they're completely pregnant or they're just pregnant. <laughs> is there a difference? Well, I think there is a distinction here because we're supposed to be humble and, and he shouldn't have to add the word completely, but I think he's adding it for a reason. He's saying that uh, the opposite of humility is pride, right? And he's saying that if you're mostly humble, kind of humble, sometimes humble, there's probably pits of pride in there. And pride, even the tiniest bit, is devastating to our unity. Whenever pride creeps in to what we want in this room, something bad will happen. And so he's saying, you need to pursue unity to have complete humility. Now, how high of a bar is that? I, I, I can't do it. I, I've, I've tried. I mean, there are some things, don't you think there are some things in your life that you think that God has just gifted you a little bit more than your neighbor and you understand a little bit better? I mean, whether that's, maybe that's interior decorating. And you walk into some home and go, ooh, I would have never done this. 
right? Or um, it could be mathematics. That's my, one of my weaknesses. I, I, I don't know how many times I've got in discussions. I won't call them arguments. Somebody says, yeah, I got 458 miles a gallon. I just calculated it. I go, no, you didn't. And I want to add, you idiot. No, it's just, it's just I have a little arrogance on mathematics. Says, you don't try to stump me with math. That's not really going to work. But the point is that when you see somebody that actually doesn't know as much as you about anything, are we proud? Even a little bit of pride now is devastating to our unity. It's deadly. And so he tells us it's important to pursue complete humility. So now I would just say, when you ask yourself this question, am I humble? And I know you're going to answer it, well, am I mostly humble? I'm, I'm significantly humble. But are you completely humble? That's the goal. You see, for preserving unity, only completely humble will do. Are you all in? You want to pursue compute, com, uh, complete hum humility? Well, gentleness is the next one. Uh, gentleness and meekness, um, it's one of the nine fruits of the Spirit, as it were, the gentleness, according to uh, Galatians. Some people consider meekness, gentleness, as weakness, wimpiness. Anybody who's meek has got to be wimpy. You must stand up for yourself. You've got to fight, right? Well, Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am meek, and I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. I don't believe anybody would have characterized Jesus as weak or wimpy. Do you think any of the people thrown out of the temple would have considered Jesus weak or wimpy? I don't think so. I don't think you wanted to mess with him. Um, the question is, gentleness in Scripture is not this. It's power under control. Power under control. Like a horse, if you break and train a horse, the horse retains its speed. He retains its strength. It's just under new management. The rider. And God wants us to be like this. The things that powerfully would motivate us to do the wrong things need to be put under new management. So do you think God can even control powerful and strong emotions by the Spirit of God? Amen. I do. We are supposed to be gentle and have even things that powerfully would work in us and even our own strengths need to be exhibited under God's control. Now, it doesn't mean a, a gentle or a meek person can never get angry. It just means they need to get angry at the right things at the right time. And generally, I think we're wired backwards. Basically, Jesus only got mad when God or his word or his temple was maligned or defamed. He stood up tall. How about when he was personally offended? Nope. He didn't take any action when he was personally offended, rebuked, crucified. This is like a lamb before its shears is dumb. He didn't even open his mouth. Well, what do we open our mouth on? When we get personally hurt. Ah! When God's name is defamed in the world, we're kind of silent. We're backwards. So what I see here is a gentle person, a meek person, has mastered this thing about anger 
and has learned to be angry when God wants them to be angry and to not be angry when it's only them that's getting hurt. If we were a church like that, wouldn't that be amazing that you couldn't hurt somebody's feeling? They would try to understand what you were telling them. As you said something, they wouldn't say, you said that wrong. What do you, mind? What do you mean by that? You're offending me. I don't know. I've been in relationships in the past before I got married now that it was almost the intention of the person to misunderstand you. If you said, hey, you look good today, what about yesterday? <laughs> you can't even give a compliment without getting slapped. Are we that kind of people? Are we people that don't get angry when we're offended? But we only get angry if God's offended. So now... There's one other thing I think about a gentle person that says in Galatians 6.1, they are peacemakers who like to restore. So if we get angry at the wrong things or too quickly angry or personally offended, um, basically we're looking at us. And what God wants to do with us is make us peacemakers that restore others to forgive, quick to forgive, quick to listen, slow to get angry. Are we demonstrating we're all in in gentleness and our anger is under control, our strong emotions are under control, and we're a hard-to-offend people? That's what it's going to take to be all together. Patience. Now, it's interesting. The word patience here does not simply mean waiting, like I'm in line and I'm patient. That's not what it means here. What this means is to bear with negative consequences or situations with faithful endurance. When things don't go our way, what's our go-to reaction? I'm not going to even imply what yours is. I can tell sometimes mine is not good. Life and circumstances aren't easy. Um, and the patient saint in one is one who trusts in God and perseveres anyway. You see, um, we read over and over in Scripture about the saints. Let's say Isaiah heard the call of God in Isaiah 6. Who will go for us? Isaiah raises his hand, and he says, this is going to be an easy mission. And no. God says, by the way, thanks for going. Uh, they won't listen to you. They're going to reject your message. The kingdom's going to get destroyed, and you'll be a total failure. Uh, and they'll probably end up killing you in the end. Now, would you be faithful under that assignment? This is what God is calling us to. Not on comfort and ease, but when going gets tough in this church, are we going to be faithfully enduring? If, if our new pastor comes and, and, and says, you know, I'm not sure I like that, that, that particular uh, strategy he's got. It's godly, it's in the Bible, but it's not my favorite. Are you faithfully enduring and, and saying, I'm going to learn about this. I'm going to apply myself. I'm going to follow God's instruction and leadership. I'm going to pray that God gets the glory out of whatever we do. Or do I say, no, I'm going to find another church because they, they didn't have the same Sunday school program I wanted. Uh, they changed the carpet color, and I don't like that. Faithfully enduring. Um, I think another one here is uh, important for unity. Don't we want to know that the person standing next to us won't cut and run when it gets tough? If we are a people that doesn't faithfully endure, we will never accomplish big things. Because big things are never accomplished without effort. 
And when, if you know the person next to you is going to stick it out with you, you don't have to be careful about your words. You don't need to care if it's hard. They're going to be with you. You can endure. You, they're, a, they're a strength to you. They're, a, they're an encouragement to your unity. They're not just a hole in your boat just saying, well, this isn't going too good. I don't think I'm going to stay. I don't like what you're doing. It's, and kids aren't coming. I don't <laughs> Man, I don't want to be in a team like that. Do you? No. And you want the person next to you to faithfully endure, just like you should do. Last, we have uh, love. Show tolerance for one another. I've I got to go fast. Why do we even want to tolerate one another? Well, newsflash. Uh, you and I aren't perfect. Do we need to be given leeway? I do. Will I mess up all the time? Do I want people to be kind and loving to me? Yes. Well, what does th this actually mean? Well, in 1 Peter 4.8, he says, love covers a multitude of sins. Uh, now, this doesn't mean we're supposed to cover up sin in the church and... Well, you didn't do anything. What? Hmm? What? Ooh. No. This means that we love people who sin, that want to confess their sins to us, and we protect them with a blanket of love, and we don't let that story get out. We protect their reputation. We protect, can you be a person that people could come to and confess their sins to, and they know that it's not going to be all over the church the next day? Are we going to gossip about one another? Well, Proverbs said, whoever would foster love covers an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. Has that ever happened to you? When some, you shared something in confidence and they shared it and your friendship was shattered? That's happened to me. This is what we are called to be. We're called to be loving people who protect our brothers and sisters in the trenches. Not that they're perfect, not that they won't sin, but their sin doesn't offend us. We want to love them anyway and they can tell us anything and we'll pray for them and help them and encourage them to be what God wants them to be and they know that their secret is safe with you. Is everybody's secret safe with you? It should be, if you want unity. Amen. Lastly, we're instructed to be diligent. And this is the one that always kills me. I, this is the one I, I found the most arrows in my heart. I used to think that unity in this church was a wonderful thing, and I just enjoyed it every week. But right here, it says that we're supposed to be diligent, urgent, eager, anxious to protect it. And I don't think I was. I wasn't looking to try to protect unity. I was just enjoying it. I don't know if anybody's ever been there, but I, I, you might think that this is going to happen forever. I don't think it will unless we protect it. And it says diligently, eagerly. Is it a priority? Are you putting your all into this to make sure that we stay? And that means you're putting your all into living a life that's walked worthy. You're putting your all into being humble. You're putting your all into being gentle. You're putting your all into being patient. You're putting your all into loving people and covering their sins and being a not gossip. You're putting your all into making sure we protect this thing we call unity that God has given us. Are we doing that? See, that's the thing. We are called to protect it. Diligent. Um, and it says we're supposed to do that with a bond of peace. Now, I have to go fast here because I don't want to take too long because I've got to get to the next part. But Jesus said there's only one kind of peace that's, that's real. The world seeks peace. And always sought peace in name only. I read a thing on the internet. Of course, it's true. Um, 
It was a historical, ma- a historical article. They, their, their assertion was not one peace treaty that had ever been created by man has ever been kept. I, you go, what? Not one? They can't find one that they haven't found broken at some point. Uh, to me, I would say, well, what kind of peace lasts? Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus gives peace that lasts. Jesus gives a peace in our heart that's peace with him, peace with ourselves, and peace with each other. It's something that's a gift of God. And he says also, he delights and happy are those, it says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called the children of God. If you want to be like God, you're a person who seeks peace. When you walk into a room, does peace walk in? Does calming effect walk in? Or does it get stirred right up? Uh, If you're a stirrer, I'd be concerned I'd read this again. Okay, God's calling us to be a peacemaker. Don't find ways that we're different. Don't find ways that it's a problem. Don't find ways that it's, uh, it's already been offended. Find ways we can solve it. Find ways we can forgive. Find ways we can heal. Find ways we can bind. That's what we should be doing. Well, to be all in, we've got to not only be people seeking unity, but people that love peace. Some people like a good scrap. I've heard in the arguments, I want to be devil's advocate. He doesn't need help. (laughs) We don't have to take the opposite side just for the enjoyment of seeing a debate. Haven't you seen some really good debates in church? I have. That's not our call. Our call is to be peacemakers. Well, they say in wartime when soldiers are actively facing the battle, when people are actually shooting at them right now, very seldom do the soldiers fight with each other. They need them at that point. They're, the only reason I'm not dead is he's also fighting the enemy with me. But it's, they say that if the battle moves on to another front, the soldiers start fighting with each other instead. They argue over stuff like who owns what? This is mine, this is yours. This, hey, you said what? You know, you're not caring what somebody calls you when somebody's shooting at you and you're shooting back. They could call you whatever. Because if, they, if this other guy is helping defend me, I'm in. Well, we need to check this. When we lose sight of our mission and we're no longer focused on the battle as soldiers of the Lord, we're going to start squabbling with each other. You can't squabble with each other if we're commonly engaged in the, in the enemy battle. God's calling us to get engaged, to be all in, to defend the unity, but be, you're not going to pursue these things if you don't see them as an objective that we need to pursue together and we're not in the battle. That's why this men's conference here, this, you know, get in the game. I I think a lot of people feel like they're on the team like Rudy, but they never suit up. We need you on the field. We need you in the game. Um, So I would just say this. As we pursue these next few months and years with our new lead pastor, if we're people that are all in for unity, I see big things for us. If we're walking in humility, we're walking in gentleness, we're walking in patience, we're walking in love for one another that will shield and guard each other, we're walking defending the unity of the faith because we're in the game and we're not out of it 
We're not disengaged from the battle. We're not going to fight each other. We're fighting the common enemy. I think when we do this, we will succeed. So today, I would plead, urge, implore, just like the Apostle Paul, that you would be diligent to keep and protect this unity that God has given us at Valley. Live your lives worthy of the wonderful salvation that he's given you with complete humility that leaves no room for pride, even a little bit. With gentleness towards others that has our emotions under control and our anger at the right things. We want to have patience that sticks with it when the going gets tough. And we want to pursue these things in a bond of peace. I want to tell you, if we do these things, I'm going to quote Jesus' words that says what we all want. Then the world will know that you sent me to be their Savior and to have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the impact I want us to have over the next generations at Valley. Father, thank you for your word of inspiration on you on being united with Christ, that we focus on the things that unite, not on the things that divide. There's too many things that will divide us if we ever paid attention to them. But the things we can share that allow us to put you first, to be controlled by your spirit, to have humility and gentleness and patience and love for one another that bears with, we will succeed in the mission that you're going to give us. Let us be that kind of an all-in church. In Jesus' name, amen.